Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think I think the whole the fact that she took out the people that brought her into this world, you know, like just it's terrifying to think that a child is capable of taking their parents' lives and in such a cold manner and to be so calculating about it and all over puppy love. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. I am your host, Jack Vanek. I almost did not introduce myself. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And we are looking at Universal Studios and we're just talking about the fact that we haven't been to Harry Potter World and I think that is a travesty. Travesty. You need to go. Have you been, Billy? I've been at multiple times, yeah. You have? Yeah. What house are you in? Ravenclaw. (laughs) What? Ravenclaw. Why? Why? Why is that weird? I feel like you would be a Slytherin. You think so? Yeah. I think most people listening. Like snake. Most people listening to this podcast and the way that you've couched me in this podcast as being "quote unquote" the creepy one would probably say yes. <laughs> I should be a Slytherin, but no, I'm a Ravenclaw. We Slytherins the... aren't creepy, but you... they're cunning. They're cunning. Yeah. yeah. What am I? I don't you, know. Have you I'm taken a... the test? I haven't seen the movie. You haven't. <laughs> All right, it was also a book, series too. of movies I read and books. books, but I was when I was like ten. It's not one yeah. book. Um, it is February twenty seventh, which means it is Happy National Strawberry Day. Oh, and the reason why I picked strawberries is because I think of strawberry fields <laughs> and strawberry fields forever. Ah. So across from the Dakota Apartments, which is where John Lennon was shot, they created a park called the Strawberry Fields Park, mm-hmm. and it's really nice. But in two thousand four. I'm going to read this verbatim from the New York Post. Just two days after getting out of prison, babyface butcher Daphne Abdallah trudged through the snow to Central Park, where she helped slice and gut a drinking buddy seven years ago and left a note of apology for the horrific crime. And she placed this note on a bench in Strawberry Fields dedicated to the memory of her victim and which would bore a plaque of his name, uh, which was Michael Irish McMorrow. And it said... um, you know, the, the note just says things like, I'm sorry, I failed you, that kind of thing. But I always I always remember that story because it was, uh, you know, somebody leaving a note and there's a there, there's a, a bench to memorialize somebody in a park that's memorializing somebody else. Both of them have been murdered. That, yeah. It messes me up. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's, like how far that's National Strawberry down? Day. It's also National Kahlua Day, too. So if you like white Russians, if you're a fan of the dude. Have a white Russian while you're listening to this podcast. I'm a white Russian, but they're so gross. My mom, that's all my mom drank. They're really you can't good. get drunk off of white Russians, can you? Yeah. Yeah, you can. And, but then you're immediately throwing up. Um, okay, so we, well, I made a post on our Facebook group asking what, like, fun things we can do in our intro, just as, like, to, you know, to warm everybody up. And one uh, recommendation that I got is we should have, like, a true crime question. 
every podcast. So I got a bunch of good ones. And the question that I'm asking you guys today, if your life was made into a lifetime movie, who would play you? What actor or actress would play you in your lifetime movie? Well, lifetime movie would mean they'd have to be a B actress. Can it be a, a theatrical release movie? Okay, fine. Okay. Say it's like a live, but you know, like A-list actors are yeah. moving on to TV. So just the world is your oyster. I feel oyster. like we should tell each other. Well, who should yeah. play them? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because otherwise it'll sound too self-absorbed. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the people I would pick. Okay. Yeah, true. I'm like, <laughs> Marco Robbie would play me. Yeah, that's exactly who she was thinking. <laughs> well, I was aiming high. They're always like better looking than you actually are. You know? That's true. That's up for debate. Oh, I mean, you're all as beautiful as any actor or an actress out there. That's very right. nice. It's not I thought, true. I but... thought that was a burn in the start of a rivalry between <laughs> yeah. Alexis and Margot Robbie. I, know. <laughs> I love Margot I'm hotter Robbie. than Margot Robbie. I mean, I know I'm not hotter than her. Um, okay, should we start with Billy? Yeah. Who do you? We should each pick. I think. Okay, you don't want to know the first person that came to mind? Do you guys know who Stephen Merchant is? No. <laughs> <laughs> Really? I'm, I'm just trying to think of like a tall, just a guy. tall, gangly guy. The person guy. who I think would play him is not actually an actor, but still should play him. Craig Ferguson. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Craig Ferguson and Stephen Merchant, both British. Craig that Ferguson's awesome, and he has the same hair as you and same build. I, to- I totally see it. There aren't many like goth actors or Clive Owen. All right, I often get. <laughs> I don't want to tell you who I get. You can't yeah, because you get. No, no, no. It's, it's oh, negating. I'm not telling you who I get. No, yes, but no, yes. but I want to know who do you get. I get. Uh, uh, the, I you, when I had bangs, I would get that. <laughs> bangs. Yeah, I know. Yes, <laughs> what, men, in the can, 80s? men can have bangs too. I would bangs. get the, that. Um, what kind of a haircut do you have with bangs? You'd ha- have had have bangs. You just have bangs. You've and never that's seen. It? You've never gone deep into my it? Instagram. No, <laughs> I don't. I'm not dating you. I have no reason to do that. <laughs> Only guys I'm dating. Okay, so uh, I used to get one of the vampires from that uh, that vampire show on HBO. Oh, oh, um, yeah. what the fuck is his name? He's the one that he's in uh, Big Little Lies. Uh, I don't remember. I used to get that, yeah. and I would get uh, Cumberbatch a couple times. Mm-hmm. Those are the two that I get. Craig Ferguson. They just need to dye their hair black and look more goth. Right. Okay. Alexis. Alexis. Oh, I don't know. Who would it be? Oh. All right. There is a a clip of when she was on what's that what's that show in England where like they bring out all the celebrities and then they they give them a bunch of alcohol all at the same time and then they talk. Love Island? No, it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> Big Brother? No, it's a talk show. And when Margot Robbie was on it, she looked exactly like Alexis. So I would probably say I wanted Margot to be Robbie. Margot Robbie. No. Margot Robbie can play you too. God damn it. Well, I think that's probably what we would do is that we would have Margot Robbie play both of you and then they would just CJI it in. Right. It's like Freaky Friday. 100%. But with we're Cra- two different people. With Craig Ferguson. Who do you usually get as a celebrity look like? I get a lot. You do? I can't think of anybody that I think you look like. Not for a while, but I used to get Scarlett Johansson a lot. Mm. I used to get Lauren Conrad a lot. Lauren which Conrad's is really offensive. I used to get the chick from uh, Friday Night Lights. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> It's my turn. Tell me who would. By play. the way, the Margaret Robbie, it was on the Graham Norton show. Which you have, if you ever watched the Graham Norton show, it's actually very cool. I have not. Yes. Okay. Who would I be? I don't know. You don't look like anybody. I'm so unique. You are. You thought she looked like Claudia Schiffer in one of the photo shoot photos we did. Yeah. Claudia yeah. No, Schiffer. Yeah, no. That's nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't. Oh, have oh, person. I know. I know. Um, Jennifer Jason Leigh. That's the only person I get that I look like. Boom. But I she's also she like is. 30 years older than me. She was in uh, so. Fast Times. 
Oh. But if you take Jennifer like... Jason Leigh from Fast Times at Richmond High. Yeah. So we're going back in time for my... We can do that. Yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's the, that's the number one I yeah. get. Great. All right. That was fun. That was fun. Well, Benedict Cumberbatch over here. Let's get into our case, guys. So this isn't a two-parter with last week, but we were inspired to cover this case after covering the Maggie Guadardo case. And we weren't even going to cover this case, but after we were kind of like talking about it and seeing the comparisons and the similarities and how the community reacted to each of these cases, we thought it was really interesting to present them both and have you guys kind of, you know, make your own assessments from from that. Right. And so it is self-contained. You don't need to hear last week's to understand this week's, but you will have some extra insight if you do. So we are essentially back in Haley, Idaho, um, but this time it is September 2nd of 2003. And we, after doing Maggie case also, we got an overwhelming response. And I'm surprised. We must have a lot of listeners in Idaho because we got so many messages from other people who either went to the school or knew them or knew Sarah and Maggie or both and remembers both cases really well. So, well, and you ended up doing more interviews after last week's episode because of people like coming through saying that they knew Sarah. Exactly. So we have a really, really close first degree connection for this week's case. A girl named Megan, who was childhood friends basically since they were born with Sarah. Um, it went back to our parents um, being friends. Um, they went to a trap shooting club together um, throughout the years. And then uh, Sarah and I were both born in the same year. So naturally, we just kind of grew up together. So we've known each other our whole lives from preschool all the way up until our sophomore year so i mean she was always you know she was always different um a lot of fun to hang out with had a really good personality um like to stretch the truth but you know most kids most kids do i suppose so we hinted about what the sarah johnson case would entail in last week's episode But essentially, this entire story starts in the middle of the night with a teenager running from her home and running to a neighbor's house and screaming that someone had murdered her parents. Yeah, so in the early morning hours of September 2nd, 2003, these neighbors open up their door and they they see this this girl screaming, 16-year-old Sarah Johnson. She had run out of her home. She's freaked out, obviously absolutely terrified. She says that her parents had just been murdered. They call the police. And the police go into the house, go into the crime scene, and first they find Diane Johnson, the mother, who is dead from a shotgun blast that had taken off most of her head. And she's lying under the covers of her bed. Her father, Alan, was found next to her, but uh, next to, he was lying next to the bed, and he was dead from a gunshot wound to his chest. And they also heard running water, and they noticed that the shower was was running, and they saw these wet, uh, bloody footprints, and also there was blood mixed in with the footprints, and uh, Alan's body was also wet, so it appeared that he had been in the shower and probably had just gotten out of the shower when the killer surprised him, shot him, but he was able to walk towards his wife, and right before he got to the bed and, and got to his wife, he 
collapsed, and then bled to death. So when the police got to the crime scene, they immediately secured everything off, including sectioning off an entire block around the house. My immediate instinct was I need to be by my friend's side. So my mom actually got a phone call um, from uh, Lorna, who was Sarah's godmother and, you know, very close family friend and, you know, whatnot. So she called my mom. My mom came and woke me up and we just immediately in the car got and went to Sarah's house and spent the entire day with her. And then I spent the next two nights with her um, at another location. So when we drove up, we were actually one of like the last cars um, because, you know, as it turns out, it was trash day. So we were one of the last cars out because the trash came shortly after we got there. The street was lined with cop cars. So there was definitely a lot of people down there. I think what I thought was going on was somebody had just lost their parents. So she was definitely shocked. She just had like a blank look on her face. And then, you know, as the cops started to come around and ask more questions, she just got, you know, more agitated. She wanted to go outside, um, stay inside. And, you know, meanwhile, they're asking me, you know, interview questions. And she just became more agitated. At first, pretty shook up and then, you know, more pacing. So as Megan was talking about, it was trash day. And they had just taken the trash from the home out to be put in with all the other trash in the neighborhood. And the police ended up stopping the trash truck and taking the trash, their own personal trash out of there. And what they found in their trash can was a bloody pink bathrobe and two gloves. One was a left-handed leather glove and the other was a right-handed latex glove. And they also ended up finding a pregnancy test in the same trash can. And it's just the crazy timing about that, because if they would have taken that away and the police would have come a little bit later, then this is really, really important evidence for the case that would have just been gone. Yeah. So I feel like that's like super interesting. Well, think about how often evidence is just gone in the trash. (laughs) And you just would have never known. Ever. And it just gets mixed in with everything else. And there's like no way to find it again. Ever. So the timing was really great for the police when they were finding all this out. So then they go inside the home and the detectives ended up finding a trail of blood spatters, tissue and bone fragments that went all the way from the Johnson's bedroom into the hall and across to Sarah Johnson's bedroom. Right. And one of the detectives who were one of the lead detectives on the scene said there was literally blood from the ceilings to the walls all over the carpet. It was just a very, very gruesome scene. It was a rainstorm of blood inside the bedroom. He also found part of a skull cap in the hallway of the home. In the skull cap would be the top of the head of the and, skull. And the hallway is obviously not in the same room. Like that is a it was far blown distance. Yeah. Victims. Exactly. And a Winchester Magnum rifle was found in the master bedroom. Two butcher knives with the tips of the blades touching had been placed on the end of the Johnson's bed. And another knife was found in the bedroom of the couple's sons, Matthew, on Matthew's bed in his bedroom. And a magazine of bullets was also found in Sarah's bedroom, which was located around 20 feet across the hall from the Johnson's master bedroom. So when you come across a scene like this and you've got a married couple, both dead, both shot with shotguns, one of them in the head, one of them in the chest, you're going to think Mm -hmm. murder-suicide. Who would want to kill these people? That's what police are going to. So that's going to be in their head a little bit. And a lot of it seems to fit. but 
when they're looking at the murder weapon, the murder weapon is really far away from the victims. And you see this a lot with murder, murder or suicide cases where it's like, oh, the gun, the gun couldn't be, you know, if you're dealing with a pistol and a pistol goes underneath somebody's like body or something like that, it, they still could have done it. But having the gun being so far away, yeah. that's red flag number one that this, that wasn't this. So, you know, fa- you know, they, they cordon off the, the area, they put the yellow tape up, family and friends are, are around. And police start interviewing people and they start learning about, you know, who this family is and what's going on. So Alan Johnson, he was the owner of a landscaping business. And Diana, his wife, worked at a medical clinic. They actually were known for uh, hunting, having lots of fun, being great parents, and they had lively parties. Love a good party. Love a good party. I mean, and the energy that it takes as a as a full adult to throw to have, parties. It's hard. To have kids and and, <laughs> and they were party? also they were also known for always putting their kids first, but but to have kids and also known for lively parties and also hunting, that's a lot. You're it's a difficult good dichotomy to straddle for sure. I know. They were lovely, loving, loving, wonderful people. Um, Alan was always so kind, her dad. And he was always, you know, the fair uh, truth speaker, you know, hear the consequences, but, you know, did it out of love like a parent. Um, I lost my dad when I was at a young age, so I always looked up to Alan as sort of, you know, a second dad since we'd grown up together for so many years. So, you know, he was always a very loving parent. Diane, Diane, you know, she was a great mom. Um, I think as most moms are, you know, she was the rule enforcer. So as teenagers, when you're getting into trouble, she's, you know, the more scary one. But, you know, again, just very funny, always fun to be around, um, you know, just good people. As far as what my initial reaction was, I really just had no clue because, you know, one of the things that I was questioned on was how well did I know Bruno? Should I consider him a suspect? You know, what about his friends? Supposedly he was dealing drugs, so, you know, could it be a drug thing? From knowing him and knowing Sarah and knowing you know, our community, it just seemed unfathomable that any of it was possible. You know, it was just holy hell (laughs) type of situation. So off the bat, the cops also end up learning that Sarah's in a relationship with an older guy named Bruno. And the cops learn by speaking to other family members that arrived at the scene that her mom and dad kind of had a problem with their 16-year-old dating a 19-year-old guy. You know, he was... A quiet guy. Um, he didn't, he spoke broken English, so, you know, he wasn't super talkative, but, you know, he was fun to be around. I personally, I never really had a problem with Bruno when I did hang out with him. He was, he was an all right guy, I guess, for being 19 when you're a 16 year old. So obviously, once the police heard about Bruno and heard about some of the characteristics, characteristics of this relationship with Sarah, they immediately wanted to speak with him and see his thoughts on this entire thing. Um, And they actually sent an officer to go get him and bring him back to the scene for questioning. So it's at this point that the cops questioned Sarah at length. And Megan talked a little earlier about how she became agitated at the scene. She was pacing around because the cops were probing her on, on more, probing her more and more about some of this evidence because her story was not really completely yeah. cohesive and yeah. matching up yeah. with and again they're going to do that because she's the only one at the scene yeah and so 
what Sarah did say in her account when she's being questioned, she said that she woke up around 6.15 a.m. and heard her parents shower running. She continued to lie in bed, but then heard two gunshots. That's when she ran into her parents' bedroom and found that their door was closed. She didn't open the door, but rather called for her mother who did not answer. Frightened, she ran out the door at this point. But her, her story starts to change. And throughout the investigation, sometimes she says that the door was slightly opened. Sometimes she says it was closed. Uh, sometimes she says um, her door was closed. But based on all of the evidence in Sarah's bedroom, in the hall, it had to have happened because the evidence is blood spatter. It had to have happened that both of their doors would have had to been opened. And can you, okay, just put yourself in like a 16 year old kid's head. The like fact of a door being opened and closed is just not something you're going to think about, nor like realize that it's a key piece of evidence, right? You don't, you're not going to realize how far blood spatter goes. No, you're the, not fir- the realize- first thing that you're, she's probably thinking is, is the, how come she wouldn't have gotten up if somebody was walking in the house or something like that? Yeah. And immediately it's just like, well, the doors were closed. That's why. Yeah. I didn't hear, I was, I was within, there were two doors that was within me and this person that was going in, that was going into that, into the house. She doesn't realize that little specks of blood. I mean, it might not have looked. You know, it's blood spatter. It's 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 little tiny tiny. I mean, it could have been pricks. like microscopic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she also she admits that that pink robe was hers, but she's like, I don't know how it ended up in the trash. So she's immediately trying to say that the, a killer came in, put or on the robe, robe, did the shooting, took off the robe, put it in the trash. Likely mm. story. So yeah. they ask her about the robe. And her immediate, she immediately says this. It's like, well, what about the robe? Like, were you wearing the robe? And, and the cop, and she goes, I didn't kill my parents. That's the first thing that she said. I didn't oh kill my God. parents. Okay. And then she said, you know, they asked her, well, who killed your parents? And then she says, um, it was a maid. You know, maybe the killer was a maid that they, that was stealing from the Johnsons and they fired her. So she's got a, she's thought this through a little bit. Not very much, though. Yeah, I mean, a very little bit. Not very much. And like Megan said, too, it's at this point, her parents are dead. So Sarah's put in the care of an aunt and is starts spending the night at her aunt's house in Boise. And Megan stays with her for the first couple of nights. And an interesting thing or like little story that I learned when we're doing some of this research is when she was staying at her aunt's house, her aunt was talking about how Sarah was telling her about this dream that she had, that she was with her parents again. And I don't know where they were somewhere in the house. And her dad turned around and he like, there was like this big black spot on his chest. And then her mom turned around and her whole face was blacked out. And Sarah had like said something to her parents and her dad basically said to her back or she was she said something like oh like I hope you're not hurt or like I don't want to hurt you or something about being hurt and her dad said back to her well you can't hurt me anymore so when her aunt was talking about this dream that she had whoever was being who was interviewing her was kind of asking like what she thought of it and she was saying that you know maybe it was Sarah's subconscious kind of admitting guilt and probably not even realizing oh, what it meant in that dream. A 16-year-old brain is so unsophisticated. Yeah. It's just, it's unbelievable. So people are probably also not wanting to believe that. She's probably getting a lot of sympathy. It's like, this girl's probably traumatized. Like, people... 
Well, people, people are not thinking she did this off the bat because it is so people are thinking it's Bruno. Yeah. It is so much more likely that it's Bruno than her. Yeah. And yeah, people aren't looking at her. And then also it's like you got to realize that people grieve differently too. So it's like maybe she's just grieving in a weird way. So of course. Of course. So meanwhile, people are analyzing everything that's happening, trying to figure out who did this, how this happened, making sense of all this evidence. But while that's happening, funeral arrangements are being made. And Megan actually attended the funeral with her mom and Sarah. I didn't sit with Sarah there at the memorial because it was so much family. And I was sitting with my family a few rows back. But, you know, just visible crying, um, you know, talking with people. And then, you know, eventually just lightening the mood and you know just trying to carry a normal conversation well really you know going through losing a parent at a young age of myself that did not seem strange because I remember you know just trying to find some sense of not thinking of what was going on around you you know it's you just try to you know carry on and remember the good times when you're at their, you know, at their memorial. So to me, it didn't seem odd or out of place, you know, crying in and out and laughing can all be weird emotions when you're grieving. So so the owner of the rifle that was used to kill the Johnsons belonged to a guy named Mel Spiegel, and he was renting a garage apartment guest house of the John- on the Johnsons' property. So he's obviously probably the first person that police are looking at that could have done this, but he was way over the Labor Day weekend, which was 150 miles away, and he had not yet returned home the day of the murder. So he had an alibi that checked out immediately. And he did tell the police, though, that he had this rifle kept in an unlocked closet that was in his apartment. And also when police were doing like the initial check, they found part of the gun that was like sitting on his bed, basically. And I think... From what I've learned, they didn't really keep their doors locked in their regular house. So I'm Idaho. assuming that they probably didn't keep the door to this guest house locked either. I didn't keep my doors locked growing up. That's insane. You didn't? Did you back in the 1800s, Philly? You were in Nissaquag. New York. You were in Nissaquag, but still. I was in the woods. I was in Yeah, North- but you were so close to, I mean, anybody can come up from Amityville or something. And, and Nissaquag, my driveway was or... like uh, a mile from the road. I was like surrounded by woods. Yeah. Have you been in Nissaquag? Sort of. Like, yeah. kind of, yeah. It's not really a thing. It's like a, it's a rich people thing, I guess. No, it was just like a, it was like a <laughs> house in the woods. It was like a weird big That's even house. creepier, because then somebody could come in and then yeah. put your body in the woods. You don't have any neighbors. That's right. I want a lot of, that's why I feel more safer, knock on wood, in an apartment complex, because there's people around you. I had no fear. I was foolish. You that were, is foolish. You were foolish. I was also a child. You're lucky you're alive. I know. Anyways, it's true. The police are wondering who did this. Mm-hmm. If it's not Mr. Spiegel who owned the gun. Great last name, by the way. Spiegel's It's just nice. like really fun to say. It is good. So they're wondering who the hell did this. So as the investigation progresses, all of the accounts that are given police kind of point to the fact that Sarah Johnson is this sweet girl who enjoyed playing volleyball and never really showed any signs of having kind of a dark side at Mm -hmm. all but some of the people close to her did say that sarah had changed a little bit over the summer months and her priorities seemed to change and it it went from she went from having a focus on volleyball and her social life to 
being infatuated with her 19-year-old boyfriend, Bruno Santos Dominguez. Um, she had stopped by my house and we were, you know, sitting there talking out front. And she's like, oh, by the way, I'm engaged. And I just remember thinking, hmm, all right, well, we'll see how long that lasts. Also, I'm sure your parents are going to be thrilled. So, and then at, that was a very short conversation because it was right after school. I think I had cheerleading practice to get to. And then I think she had volleyball to get to, which I think that's when she told the volleyball team. As far as the engagement, I just kind of chuffed that off to be, you know, some MTV thing at the time. You know, that was like so popular getting married and engaged young. And, you know, I just didn't really think much of it. They were planning on filing statutory rape charges against him. And so I think when she figured that out, you know, she so-called snapped and um, realized, oh, shit, <laughs> excuse my language, but, you know, just I better do something or I'm going to lose the supposed love of my life. So some of Sarah's friends said that a few days before the Johnson's murder, Sarah showed them a ring and told them that she and Bruno were engaged. But they also said that Sarah often lied. And Megan said this in the beginning, that she had been stretching the truth since preschool. So they didn't really buy into what Sarah was saying about her engagement. And Sarah and Bruno had been dating for three months before the murder occurred. And the ongoing theme here is that the Johnsons did not approve of their relationship because of the 19-year-old thing, because of his immigration status. And he had this reputation of being involved in drugs, which... May not be true because people were saying that about Maggie, too. Right. They were like, when they heard that she had been murdered, they said, you know, I thought it was maybe like a drug thing. And it's, it's like, yeah. why? Did she do drugs? No. She was in accelerated classes. She was in the AP stuff. It's like, then why? Because she was Mexican? Yeah. You think she's dealing drugs? Anyways. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And, and in all of the reporting you see, they're saying he's a Mexican immigrant. They say it. It's like the first thing they yeah. say. An illegal, it's the most, illegal, um, illegal, illegal Mexican, Mexican immigrant. It's like the most glaring thing. And in so many different TV shows or articles, it's like the one thing. And it's so obviously racist. If he was an illegal Canadian immigrant, they wouldn't be saying that. That is that's, very true. Illegal damn. British immigrant. That's yep. true. Yeah, German. Right. But yeah, no, that is a thing that we had been talking about where it's like, it's just like ingrained racism through all of the media that was reporting on these cases. And it's really fucked up. It is really fucked up. And what's super interesting, and this is what Megan's going to tell us about next, and it's something I didn't know about. And I don't think you heard about it either, Jack, during the research. Billy, probably not you either. So <laughs> Billy just shows up. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, the knives on the bed that yes. they found. So I didn't know this, but... Well, let's, I'll let you guys hear from Megan and then we'll comment. Okay. You know, backtracking to when they were looking at Bruno um, as a suspect. Um, and, you know, the whole thing with the knife on the end of the bed and, you know, what that symbolized. So they were saying that that was like your next. So they, the knife was put on the edge of um, her brother's bed. And, you know, that, I guess, is a gang symbol for your next. I remember that just being so odd because, you know, in our little tiny town in Idaho, we don't have gangs. And so to portray a gang that just seemed, you know, so out of place 
from when it came out later on that they think that she was trying to throw them in the direction of Bruno or his or some of his friends or you know somebody that he knows because I I mean I've watched a lot of crime shows and you know that's something you just see in the TV shows so to me she probably you know saw that on a TV show and thought that was a cool idea to try to throw them off. I mean, I think the town liked to talk and think that he was involved because it was it was more far-fetched to think that Sarah would have done something like this. But he, I think he was always still seen as a suspicious person um, or person of interest. No. I find that a little odd. So what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with a stage crime scene. And these knives, it's supposed to be a gang thing, saying um, a gang symbol for someone being next. It's a little strange. But, you know, they start learning more and more about what was going on in this house. So just a few days before the murder, Sarah had told her parents that she was going to go spend the night with friends. But instead, who did she spend the night with? Bruno. With Bruno. Her parents find out and her father go, father goes looking for her the next day and finds and goes to the family's apartment, Bruno's family's apartment, and finds her with Bruno. Not not good. Not a good scene. Well, you're a father. How would you feel? I'd be pretty pissed off. Yeah. I'd be pissed. I'd be pissed off. Well, the parents are never happy when their kids lie. No. Yes. How many times did you lie to your parents? I've never lied to my parents. <laughs> I lied to my parents once. You, who would you lie to your parents I lied about? to my parents once that I said I was hanging out with a friend's house and I actually went and hitchhiked to Huntington. Hitchhiked? To go to, go to a, um, a, 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 a Halloween party. I lied all the time as a teenager. I didn't. I was a yeah. really bad kid, though. I oh, did, see, I, I wasn't. Yeah. I was a terrible kid. I was a really good kid, and my parents also gave me enough freedom, so I never had to lie about things. Like, I never had a curfew, yeah. so I always told my parents where I was. They... They were just like cool with what I did, so I never had to really lie. Well, lied. she lied. <laughs> well, Sarah's and not like us. The, so that Sarah, she's like Sarah, and she's her like parents me. argue. But not really. Sarah and so, so you know they're arguing, and then Sarah comes right out and says, "Well, we're engaged." Mm, so her mom that never goes over. You well. tell them, Sarah. Her mom's really upset, and she's like, "I'm going to go to the police, and I'm going to report him for statutory rape, and he's going to get thrown out of the country." So there you go. So we're starting to see a, like a Romeo and Juliet thing starting right, right here. Listen, they, if you tell somebody, if you have a problem with people, this is even if your ex, if your boyfriend breaks up with you and there's someone else, if you have a problem with it, it brings people closer. If, yeah. you, if you make a big thing about it and you turn people against them and like the more attention you give it, the more bonding it is for those people. People bond over hating other things they do. or people. They do. It's the or, best or they bonding. feel like it's like it becomes an us against the world type thing. Right. And it's it's it gets really sexy. Like, oh, we're not supposed to be together. It turns into this exciting mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. when normally it'd just be kind of mundane. Right. Because <laughs> most so, things are. Body and Clyde would have just been some basic basic bitches, bitches yeah, basic couple but no all of a sudden they're, i understand yes so they they tell sarah you know what? you're grounded you're grounded for the rest of labor day weekend and we're taking the car keys but so so sarah's just hanging out at home but she has a key to spiegel's apartment and who was spiegel if you guys remember spiegel's the guy with the gun and spiegel's the guy with a good last name too so both Diane and Sarah ended up calling Sarah's brother, Matt, 
who was away at college, and they called him on the night before the murders. Matt said his mother was crying about Sarah's relationship with Bruno, and she was super embarrassed by Sarah's actions. And uncharacteristically, Sarah seemed to accept her parents' punishment for being grounded all Labor Day weekend, and she told Matt that she knew what they were up to, which seems kind of sketchy and weird to me. And Matt didn't like how his sister's comment sounded, and he almost called his mom back to kind of talk about it, but he decided not to because it was already too late. But the next day, the Johnsons were dead. So, yeah, this doesn't look really good for Sarah. Um, because on top of this, there was even more strange evidence found at the scene around the exterior of the house. And re- remember, we mentioned that this pregnancy test was found yep. in the garbage can. And this is something that we, we haven't mentioned yet. But Sarah actually told the police at one point that she was pregnant with um Bruno's child. So I'm not sure really where that plays plays in, but in when they found out she wasn't or whether she was or not. Mm-hmm. Um she was 16, that's probably not information that's accessible, yeah. truly. But anyway, so they had all this stuff tested for DNA, including the bathrobe and all the things we mentioned earlier in the episode. Because they collected all this evidence, but it was 2003, things were a little more archaic than they are now. It takes time to process all of this to determine fibers, DNA, Gunshot residue, all the things, the blood spatter, all of that stuff. That analysis takes time. But they were able to determine that blood and tissue found on Sarah's pink robe belonged to her mother, Diane, along with DNA that matched Sarah, which is to be expected. So even if a criminal was wearing it, that wasn't Sarah. It's Sarah's robe. So that's not that weird. But the, the mother's DNA on it is strange. And the gunshot residue was found on the glove and Sarah's DNA was found inside of the glove. Diane's DNA was also found in the blood that was on the socks Sarah was wearing on the morning her parents were killed. The bloody sock. The bloody sock. Goes back to the bloody socks. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Evidence is starting to mount. 
we've got the robe, we've got the glove, and we've got the situation of her being, you know, upset with her parents, being grounded, loving Bruno. It's all there. So they, there's enough to make an arrest. So she's charged as an adult on two counts of first degree murder, and she pleads not guilty. Really, because at that point, I had, you know, been questioned by the police a couple of times. I was not surprised because I I had known. I had already figured out that they were looking at her pretty seriously as a suspect. As far as being in school, everybody else's reaction was pretty in shock. Um, You know, I think as expected, nobody thinks their 16-year-old classmate would ever do something like that. It was before she was arrested. There was a there was a moment when I was staying with her, like immediately after she um, had done this, and I remember her waking up in the middle of the night, and she heard sirens, which there weren't any, but she heard sirens, and she said, "Oh my God, they're coming to get me! Like I'm next, I'm next," and. At the time, I didn't think about it, but then when piecing it all together, you know, it hit me like, holy cow, my friend did this. I just spent two nights with her. It was hard because, you know, like I said, we didn't, we lost my dad not too um, soon before to suicide. So it was, um, you know, for her to lose my dad and then lose her, you know, really close friends. Um, it was definitely difficult. It was a lot of grief, you know, to happen in a short period of time. A big part of this and a big part of the reason we were compelled to cover this episode is based on the reaction of this particular high school, how they handled um, Sarah's case versus Maggie's from our last episode. So we'll let Megan explain and then we'll comment after. Yeah, well, I mean, for being such a small community, everybody knew her parents. So, you know, this immediate reaction, you know, before we knew that it was Sarah was we just lost, you know, two pillars of our community. So everybody was was shook. So, yeah, they did offer counseling to people. I mean, you know, we had group, you know, talk about sessions. Um, you know, talking about grief and how it hits you in different ways, you know. So they were really proactive in trying uh, to alleviate any pain that it was to have these people gone. So to compare that with how the community reacted and how the school provided resources with Maggie's case, number one, Maggie uh, was killed two weeks before they went back to school. Mm-hmm. And then when everybody went back to school, it was like nothing happened. There were no, there were no counselors. There's no, no like therapy. There's nothing. Not only that. So this was, uh, I think just prior to Sarah's arrest. So it's not like she'd actually been arrested yet. So they were actually offering counseling for the loss of these parents that a murder had occurred and two parents of a student had died. Maggie was a student yeah. who people had classes with. And I mean, this is worth bringing up in that, um, I mean, is it because of the unusual nature of a of a child being suspected? I mean, parasite is very rare. Yeah. It is more rare than domestic violence. So it could be, which is what happened with Maggie and Freddie. So it could be, you know, that this is very rare. But 
I mean, listen, it's not it's not like black and white with that. Like it's, it's not. not one thing or the other. There's probably a bunch of different reasons why one was covered more than the other, but it is a very glaring thing that two deaths in a community had such different reactions and especially within like a school to provide resources for other kids to kind of cope with it. And yes, and the gruesome nature of the death of Sarah's parents, it is gruesome. Gunshot blasts very gruesome. are very gruesome. It's not more gruesome than being beaten with a hammer and lit on fire. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she's 16. She didn't get to do anything. Yeah. Maggie. So. Yeah. And she was friends with people at the school. I think that's the big, you know, you hit the nail on the head, Alexis, is that she was part of the school. And it's when you would go to the school every day, you would see her. You right. wouldn't see these parents and every every life for me is worth the same. But, you know, she had a connection to the school that was there's somebody that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they just were like, let's move on. Whereas they made such a big deal out of this. I think it shows what was going on in this community. And I think if um, if the roles were reversed in terms of race, we would see something a lot different. Well, Absolutely. and just also based on how they treated Bruno in the media. Uh, well, he was almost, yeah, he was just as much as a they criminalized, vilified. They, they villainized him yeah. and he didn't do it. So it's like, you know, just calling him a, a legal Mexican immigrant every chance they got. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Almost as if to justify the parents saying we don't want him seeing her. Right. Like, I don't know what their angle is in that. Um, I don't know what political agendas were being pushed in 2003 because I don't even pay attention to them now because it's annoying. But back then, I certainly <laughs> didn't. I was in 10th right. grade. So, but it's possible that that's another agenda pushing thing that was happening. But yeah, and it's like we don't know, but it's like the all we know are the facts that are kind of presented in front of us. No, it's a theme in this community. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. So Sarah's trial is approaching right now and the prosecution's facing this really big problem with a major piece of evidence. And that was the pattern of blood spatter found on the back of her robe. Most of the blood was on the left sleeve sleeve in the back of the robe and the front of the robe was pretty much spotless. So the question was, if Sarah put on the robe before shooting her parents, how did so much blood get on the back? And while the prosecution was struggling to put together a viable explanation for the location of the blood on the robe, Sarah's defense lawyer, Bob Pangburn, a, a worst pe- name ever. <laughs> it's not a, it's not Spiegel. Pangburn. Pangburn. A pang is bad and a, and burn, a burn is bad. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> he uh, was a guest on Nancy Grace's current affairs program. Nancy Grace asked Bob about the blood on the rope, and he said that it showed possible contamination of evidence and that it actually could help exonerate Sarah Johnson. But Nancy Grace, being Nancy Grace, offered another explanation. She suggested that if Sarah wanted to protect her body from a clothing and clothing from the blood spatter, she could have put the robe on backward. It would act as a shield and the blood would end up on the back of the robe. So Rod Engler and other members of the prosecution team happened to be watching the program and Nancy Grace's theory provided them with a reasonable <laughs> scenario that results in the blood patterns that were on the robe. You're laughing, Billy. Yes. Nancy Grace changing lives. No, it's Could just, you believe I mean, I mean, people listen, behind bars? You know, she, Nancy is a lawyer. She Prosecutor. A, a prosecutor, yes. A former prosecutor. The, the fact that they hadn't thought of that before is, is, a, is a little odd. 
feel like there's Listen, only one way to wear said, a robe. They've said this multiple times. This community has not dealt with yeah. a murder with in a, a hom- long time. Not I think one it said that com- complicated. Well, and I think it said they literally hadn't had a homicide case in like ten years. Yeah. So these oh, are two? not. These are not the. Probably. Well, they have two. Uh, 2007 is when Maggie's happened. Right. This is 2003. Right. Um, and then so they provided this theory of like how the blood could have gotten on the back of the robe, but then they still had to prove that she was wearing the robe on the morning that it happened. So what they ended up doing is she had this blue T-shirt on the the morning of the murder that she like went to her neighbor's house and was like yelling about the murders. So what they ended up doing is they tested the shirt and the robe to see if there was any like transfer of fibers between the two. And they ended up finding that there was because on the shirt there was this green paint that she must have worn it to paint something and that those green specks of paint ended up transferring on the robe. So that's how they figured out that she was wearing it that morning or probable likely likeliness of her wearing it. Billy, you look pensive. I mean, it's a little when you're dealing with clues in a home that somebody lives in, you know, it's not somebody that's foreign from that right. home. So, uh, so whenever she, whenever she might have done that green painting, I'd be interested to see, you know, to, just to put the timeline on it because she easily could have worn that shirt and then worn the robe some other worn time. the robe some other time, right. and then that transfer would have happened. So it's pretty sophisticated that they did that, and they obviously saw that, you know. Defense attorneys are always, and the reason why we can sort of, quote unquote, make fun of defense attorneys, you know, that what they're doing is they're trying to throw any kind of roadblock up for reasonable doubt. doubt. Mm -hmm. So what they're trying to do is like, oh, look at the blood spatter. You know, it's on the back. What does that mean? Which is a little weird because it's just sort of, well, how would it have gotten there anyway? Um, But at the end of the day, you know, yeah, she wore that robe. And I guess what she was thinking is that it would cover her. And this is 2003. This is before... All of these true crime programs and everything. Let's think. Let's remember that for a second, because everybody's out there thinking, "We're listening to this game." Oh, I would have done that so much better if I was going to kill my parents. And I know that's what you're all thinking. Yep. But what she was doing was she was thinking, "All the blood's gonna might might splatter on me or spatter on me. I'm going to uh, take this, throw it in the garbage. If she takes it and throws it in the garbage, and the garbage gets picked up, then they're doing a dumpster dive um, in in the garbage heap, and it's it's a big pain in the ass." She thought that she could get away with this based on just throwing the stuff away and having the garbage go out to the street. She thought that they wouldn't check the garbage. Well, she honestly probably would have if they took the garbage away. How would they have known that she was wearing a robe? You always... They would have known, but they may not have been able to prove yeah. it or find it, depending on like where that garbage goes. You know, when you look... this, when They I... would have had really good circumstantial evidence. When I was researching this case, I kept thinking but about... But how would they prove that she was wearing the robe? They wouldn't. They would have used other stuff besides the robe. Right. But I think but what else I was think there? we hear about I think we don't hear about the other stuff because the, the mo- robe was their smoking gun. Right, right, right. So I think though, if you probably pulled the transcripts, I'm sure there was more. Like, like uh, the blood in her room, where. But then but I that know, doesn't prove it's her. Well, you could also say there there are inconsistencies in her statement, which there's just a lot. Right. You know. Yeah. So you, I, when I was. Researching this case, I kept thinking about the Mar- Marty Tancliffe case. You remember that case? It was on Long Island. Uh-huh. He killed his parents. Mm-hmm. They had pictures of him with two black eyes because he had just gotten a nose job. And and they were saying that he was the only person in the house. I would love to cover that case, by the way, if any of you He can come on. Him. You know him? I'm friends, I'm friends with him on Twitter. Yeah. Is, wait. Because he got out of jail. Because he, he was not. He didn't do it. It wasn't him? No. Yes. But Marty, Marty Tancliffe, he, they tried to say that... The parents wouldn't let him drive 
the fancy car, like the BMW or the Mercedes, one of those two, and they made him drive the station wagon. Oh, God and he, um, and they said that he killed his parents. And, you know, they, they had this picture of this kid, and it was such a, it was very much a an, an entitled rich kid story. That's how they painted it. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he literally, he had two black eyes from a nose job that he had gotten. And they were painting this as this rich kid who, um, such entitlement, he was a millennial before millennials were a thing, you guys. And he killed his parents because he couldn't drive the cool car. But he got out of it because apparently, you know, there was a lot of shady business dealings. There was a whole bunch of things going on. I kept on going back to that case. He actually, you know, in um, he was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 25 years to life, but he had an appeal. And after... I think he served 17 years in prison and then he finally got out and it's been reversed. And now he's working on, on cases now. He's very much, very much like, you know, along the lines of like, like, well, like the Innocence Project. Well, yeah. Innocence Project, the Innocence Project has taken on Sarah's case. Really? Yes. Why? There must be that. I was going to get to that later, but this just came up organically. So I don't know why. Usually they only do it if they have DNA. I know that's changed. Now they'll do it with if, it, if there's enough circumstantial evidence. But there's obviously something in Sarah's case that was mishandled. It depends. In in California, they don't have to do DNA anymore because they've done all the DNA cases for the most part. And because they were just, oh, they were on the forefront yeah, they don't of that. Have to do DNA so anymore. now they're doing strange Whatever. cases that don't have DNA. But, they're but you're so right, selective. though. You're right, though. For this, for the other states, like you see in, Cal- in you know, Virginia and all those other states, they're just like, we won't take a case unless it's got DNA because they know that's the one the that's going to be that's a smoking pro. Yeah, that's about. a smoking gun. Yeah. Well, every I, state has their own. Yeah. I wonder what their what the well, there's you know, is. that's a great question. So let's get back to the trial. Um, and what the prosecution strategy was. So there was lots of testimony and many witnesses called by the prosecution to speak on Sarah Johnson's character, as well as the inappropriate behavior and lack of emotions about the murder of her parents that she exhibited in the days following the homicides. And Megan was called as a witness for the prosecution as well. I was subpoenaed more as a character witness and then again because I had spent, you know, the following two days um, with her. Uh, so, you know, 48 hours after, um, you know, I had a lot I had a lot to say. Well, you would think it'd be something like a Law & Order scene. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you think... You have your whole life <laughs> flash before your eyes, like with this person that you spent your childhood with on and off. And now, you know, you're facing them for murdering their parents and, you know, essentially good friends. So it was just, uh, it was definitely terrifying. Um, you know, I went myself and talked to um, a therapist on how to stay in the moment and relaxed and calm and you know to be able to answer questions um professionally and you know i took a lot of that with me whenever i was being questioned um on the stand and it is really scary like (laughs) it's definitely a scary scary position it's not like watching tv she really didn't make eye contact with me i was scared to be honest so i really just focused on the person asking me questions um, rather than trying to look over at 
her. Um, but the one time that I did look over at her, she was not looking at me. So others were called to testify and they started talking about what she was like, what Sarah was like in the aftermath of the murders. And they were saying that she was most concerned about seeing her boyfriend. She didn't seem traumatized. She, at her funeral, she was talking to people about wanting to play volleyball that night. And any kind of time that she was showing sadness, people were saying that, that it wasn't real. It seemed like it was being faked. Witnesses also testified about the relationship between Sarah and her mother, which was very troubled. But of course, it's not unusual for a girl of her age to you know, fight with, with their mother. So, you know, what you're getting here is you're getting these these character witnesses um, going on. Uh, you know, her half-brother, Matt Johnson, he gave some, some of the most insightful testimony about Sarah, although some of it proved to be some of the most damaging. Right. So on the stand, Sarah's brother, Matt, described her as a drama queen and a good actor who had the propensity to lie. Oh. During part of his two-hour testimony, he said that the first thing Sarah told him when he arrived at their home after finding out that his parents had been murdered was that the police thought that she did it, which is a very narcissistic thing to say. He told her he thought Bruno did it, which she immediately denied. And she said that Bruno loved her dad like a father, but Matt knew this wasn't true. She also told him that at 2 a.m. the night before the murders, someone had been to their house. Her parents checked the yard to make sure no one was out there before they went back to bed. And she had not provided this information to the police. So Matt didn't really believe her story, but didn't really challenge anything that she was saying. And then in the weeks after the murders, Matt testified that he avoided asking his sister about the murders because he was afraid of what she might tell him. So like in his gut, he probably knew. He that. knew. He was in denial because it's like he's, he's it's lose la- I mean, the he last member his of his family. That's just, I mean, think about that. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's like, nothing. I can't accept this. I hope she's not. He knew, but he didn't want her to be. Right. So during this time when this case is being built while uh, she's participating in her own trial, she is behind bars. And it's at this time that Sarah befriends a cellmate in the jail. Yeah. So unfortunately for Sarah, the cellmate, Melanda Gonzalez, was called to testify for the prosecution. And she described her experiences in sharing a cell with Sarah. And according to, John, uh, according to Gonzalez, Sarah was talking about her parents' murder and was explaining something to her and telling her a story and made a slip and muttered, when I killed my, uh, I mean, when my parents were killed, when the killers killed my parents. So she did some little Freudian slip yeah. like, like OJ. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I've literally done that when I'm trying to like, not even lie Why? maliciously, but just, just, Hold something back. Oh, absolutely. I'm, you that know, everybody. Unless you're a sociopath, that's what you're going to do. Right. You're not going to get away with that. No. <laughs> so, according to Gonzalez, Sarah also said that for her 17th birthday, she wanted to be released from jail so she could get a massage <laughs> and a spa treatment. Oh my God, that's not how it works. It's more just like that's what your priority is. Yeah. When yeah. You, you've lost your parents, you don't know if your brother hates you. It's like you're totally. Your just, life is over, but then it's like you don't even. You don't realize the consequences of what you've just. What is she? Is she Care. sad about her f- parents? It's insane. It's fascinating. You just want to get a spa treatment, you bitch. I mean, same, but I didn't do anything bad. I yeah, I haven't murdered anybody, so I deserve a spa treatment. Like Burke Williams <laughs> next weekend. Let's do that. Yes. All right. So, here's the thing about this case, though, is that Sarah's defense team 
has something to latch onto because there's no physical evidence on on Sarah or any of the clothing other than that robe. There's no biological matter. There's nothing in her hair. There's nothing in her hands. There's nothing on her face. There's nothing. And experts testified that with Diane having been shot at such close range, it would have been impossible for the shooter to avoid being sprayed with this blood and tissue. Remember, her skull cap came off. And there was nothing found on Sarah. And she underwent two complete physical exams uh, on the day of the murders. They didn't find anything. Her fingerprints were also not found on the bullets, the rifle, or the knives. However, there was one unidentified print found on the rifle. Now, this is, this is very similar to a story that I did, the Kimberly Long story, who was somebody that was released from the Innocence Project. Now, I covered Kimberly Long's case. She was uh, convicted of murdering her boyfriend, but she had no physical evidence on her. And she was wearing the same stuff that she was wearing that night that everybody had seen her. Mm -hmm. The blood spatter, that, that was a stronger case, though, because... Whoever had hit her boyfriend who was sleeping on the couch, somebody came behind him and hit him with a, with a sharp ob- or a uh, blunt object. The blood spatter went everywhere. It, w- it, was, it was all around the room. It was 360 around the room. It would have gotten on something, and then they got her right away. This is strong, though. And yeah. I bet this is why Innocence Project is, is going on oh, there. Totally. But as, as people say, evidence of ab- absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right. You know? No, that, doesn't mean, that is doesn't crazy. Mean, doesn't mean that that it didn't happen. You know, weird things can happen. That she could have been wearing something over it, but that um, they didn't find. That, that, that they didn't find exactly. She put it in the neighbor's trash, and it just did well, not. Well, remember, we know that there were gloves, uh, and we know that there was a robe, mm-hmm. and her DNA was inside of one of the gloves. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that she might have when she when she shot, she could might she have, have sh- put, like, put, you know put, put her head down. No, but this now, is there the was thing. No showering, no. There was also a pregnancy test in there, which obviously has nothing to do with the murder. So maybe the glove. Didn't have anything to do with the murder, right. the latex glove, and maybe the glove touched the robe, which had her mom's DNA on it. But her, oh, do you know what I mean? Her DNA was inside the glove. Yes, because maybe she did the pregnancy test with the glove. She didn't want to like pee on her hand or something. But was her DNA inside the latex glove or the leather glove? I think it was inside the latex glove. Okay. They were probably inside both, but it's like you throw a leather glove away, you throw it. I mean, there's a bunch of shit in that trash for sure. So Dude, it's, it's like also, you don't know what's connected to what. Yeah, there can be cross contamination. Yeah. Um, there's enough here. I can see why the Innocence Project is taking this on because there's enough there to throw it up and also say, and what the Innocence Project can do when they do in these cases is they can go back and try to get an appeal because her original defense team didn't do their job. And that's what they're trying to say. Well, not only that, I've been looking for the right time to bring this up, but since her conviction, it is now unconstitutional to give minors life without parole sentences. Mm -hmm. Um, just generally speaking, in very certain particular circumstances, they are still allowed to do it. If it's particularly depraved, if there's absolutely no, if the judge deems that there's no chance of rehabilitation at all. Because after this uh, law was passed, a lot of cases were brought back to judges and judges had the the choice whether to to resentence or to reaffirm sentences. So in many cases, people were resentenced to like 60 years or 70 years or things like that. Um, but in, in some really depraved cases, the judges were like, no, this is one of those unusual things. Like, I right. don't There's think you no should get out. This. Yeah. Exactly. So people who were given life without parole sentences under the age of 18, they're, they're looking at all these cases again. So Sarah actually has two, two potential roads of hope. You know, like right. she could be resentenced um, and given less time. 
because of her age. I mean, it is fucked up to give people life without parole under 18. Yeah. Like, we know the brain isn't developed Ugh. at all. Yeah. Until tw- tw- 26. 26. Yeah. So it's like she's a child. And you can tell based on these, on how she handled this, that she is. Mm-hmm. And if the Innocence Project, I know uh, they could be reaching, but they think it's strong because they don't waste their time. They have very limited money. No, that's why I was like interested or uh, yeah, interested when you said that. Cause it seems from the outside, it seems like a case where it's like, why would they waste their time? But there's there obviously is something we don't evidence, know. Yeah. Because all of these shows have highlighted the evidence, which looks really slammed Damning, up yeah. and not the other right. evidence. So the jury ended up deliberating for 11 hours before sa- finding Sarah Johnson guilty on two counts of murder in the first degree. The only time that I did look at her and face her was when it was her sentencing trial. And throughout all of that testimony, you know, that that was the hardest. That was the hardest part out of all of it. Not the trial itself, but was at her sentencing trial. And then you're just sitting there facing your friend, asking the judge to put her away for what she did. And, you know, taking away more more people from the community that you know should have been there should have been there longer so sarah was sentenced to two fixed life prison terms plus 15 years without the possibility of parole she was also fined ten thousand dollars of which five thousand was allocated to go to matt johnson and i don't know what that is about that is very strange i know also wow thanks for the five thousand dollars right i have no family no family (laughs) exactly so we talked about the potential hope in Sarah's life. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about her, the Innocence Project taking interest in her case. So if we ever hear any developments on this, we will follow back up. But this is a really incredibly traumatizing thing to go through if you're in the Johnson family and if you are close friends with Sarah, which Megan was. You know, for a lot of years, it was more of anger. Um, now I've definitely forgiven uh, you know, for what she's done. But, you know, more than anything, I have a lot of angst towards it just because you kind of just wonder, you know, the what ifs of what if our friendship would have been, you know, I'm married now. So I actually thought of her on my wedding day and thought, you know, what if she was here because this didn't happen? You know, where would we have been, you know, years from now? And, you know, that's the stuff that I think about now. So it's more of like, you know, a longing for the friendship that like we never got. So, but as far as, you know, what she did, she's, she got the punishment that she deserves. I think it just makes you realize that at any moment, anybody is capable of doing something you never thought that they could. So, you know, I guess the element of surprise (laughs) for anything is gone. So in that sense, yeah, I'm changed. Um, you know, I moved away from Idaho because I just got recognized. You know, I got, I moved to University of Idaho after I moved from Sun Valley and it just became too much that people, you know, recognized me. So I moved away. So in that sense that, yeah, it changed me. Talking about something like this, you know, it brings up memories, but you know, if you don't live through your memories and and accept what happened, you know, what do what do we have from our past? So I've been through a lot in my short life so far. And, you know, it's always therapeutic to talk things out. So 
Sarah is in jail today. And we were lucky enough in that we were contacted by a girl named Tabitha, whose cousin is Megan. So Tabitha went to school with all these people. She slid into our DMs, Mm -hmm. mine more specifically. Cool. And introduced us to Megan. And then also she said, hey, my cousin Megan knew Sarah. My other cousin, Samantha, was in jail with Sarah. Jesus. So we have some insight about what life behind bars has been like for her. Um, I I met her in uh, Pocatello Women's Correctional Center. So I did know about her. In fact, uh, the day after I met her, <clears throat> they showed her special on the ID channel. It was just crazy. Like you'd sit there and you'd watch the ID channel, you know, documentary on her. And then the next day you would go see her during your out time. If you wanted to like rent out like exercise equipment or drawings or things like that, like she was the one that you talked to. So it was pretty surreal being like face to face with her and having conversations with her. She had been in there for a while. Um, so her case was what, 2003? This was 2014. She wasn't really approachable. She was real walled up. She didn't talk to a lot of people. She had her close group of friends and that's who she stuck with. You could walk around in the gym so you could kind of watch her because she would sit at this little desk area with a friend. And then we joke and laugh and, and hang out. Um, I did notice a ring on her finger, so I had asked around if she was married. And I guess she had a, a girlfriend or a wife, what, whatever, uh, in there with her. And I'm sure after doing so many years, you're, you know, you're going to crave a touch. So she took out the people that brought her into this world. You know, like, it's just, it's terrifying to think that a child is capable of taking their parents' lives and in such a cold manner and to be so calculating about it and all over puppy love. So it's really interesting that she, they were watching it in jail. Kimberly Long case that I was talking about, when I did the story on Crime Watch, they, were, they all watched it in, in jail and they started chanting Free Kim Long in the... Um, <laughs> in, oh my God. in the cafeteria and then that helped her get out so Do, that is my... that a good thing to be showing inmates that like, they true show crime inmates shows? true crime shows i think inmates get to pick what tv they want to watch it's just too meta for me what was too meta what were they playing on the plane <laughs> oh final destination you, you don't play that on the plane some i i swear to god unless this is one of those random like memories Sully on the plane <laughs> like, why, why are you doing that no i don't want to watch a plane no. crash movie while i'm on the plane It it might have been a memory that I made up in my childhood. Sometimes I do that, but I think it happened. Let's just round this off. Okay. In that we we drew a lot of parallels between Maggie and Sarah. They are different cases, so it is not black and white. Right. But I do think just overall, like in the many DMs that we received about people who knew Maggie's case, they were like, yeah, we totally agree. You know, nothing... Or like Megan, for example, I'd never heard of Maggie's case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just depends on on how you look at it. But I just think there is an attitude in this community about, you know, minorities. I, perhaps. Abs- yeah, I, yeah. I think there is. Yeah, and it's not just in this community. I mean, I mean it's, it's, more, it's media. It, it, it's, it's national it's everywhere. media. It's media. You get a blonde, you know, anytime you have somebody that's blonde versus somebody that is... Um, Natalie Holloway. There are a million where it's like they go missing or they disappear or they get murdered and it's national news slapped everywhere. Sarah Johnson, a blonde who kills her parents, who gets more attention than most victims get. Yeah. Right. No. And that is, that is the sad state of our society. Mm-hmm. But it is that the, the perpetrator... 
uh, and the worst crime that the perpetrator does, they get more attention than any of the victims. And if you kill more people, I talked about this with Bundy, the more people you kill, the less you know about the victims and you more, the more you know about the killer. It is so disgustingly ass backwards. Mm-hmm. Like it really is. Well, I think I was really encouraged by the fact that like after Maggie's episode, we got such positive feedback in many other people who went to school with her saying, that, oh, my God, she was my classmate. You know, like we totally agree that it didn't get the coverage. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just think about if it was my friend or my daughter or my mom and I mean, that's if no one cared. Left, and it's like and to have it kind of just been for, be forgotten about or like swept under the rug like that it's it's really sad and it's unfair it's really sad so uh we encourage you if you think we're not going to care about your story we get back to all of our emails Mm -hmm. at least we try to in a timely manner there are many well again and it's like that's i mean we've talked about it before but that's what makes our podcast different whereas like if we were choosing our own cases to cover they probably we probably wouldn't cover 90 percent of the cases that we have and every story deserves to be told and no life is worth more than another life. So it kind of um, gives us a purpose of telling some of these stories that are forgotten about. Exactly. We want to cover them all. Yes. Right. So if you guys are connected to a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Again, Alexis checks all of our DMs probably every hour on the hour. <laughs> so gotta get my kick somewhere. Yep. So follow us at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. And um, you know, keep your family close but not that close. Turn the lights on, lock your doors. Is that it? That's yeah. it. Happy Happy National, National Strawberry, Strawberry Day. Happy Strawberry Day. National Kahlua Day. Happy Kahlua Day. Over and out.